Behold, the humble opossum. Snout of a pig, tail of a rat, feet of a creepy baby. It's hard to know what to make of the opossum at first blush, but on further inspection, well, it's even harder. It's the only marsupial representative that we have north of Mexico, and I'm not sure it's done much to endear people to these primitive mammals. On this episode, we look at what makes this enigmatic beast tick, and how the urbanization of America has allowed the lumbering possum to expand its range ever northward. Welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you have a flair for the dramatic, you'll love opossum fainting couches. They're perfect for any occasion. Spurned lover come to win you back. Long lost sister found secretly alive. One true love shot dead at war. The true dramaturg wouldn't be caught dead without one. Opossum fainting couches are handcrafted with the finest on hair, designed with your comfort in mind as you feign death and fall backwards. And added layers of blankets allow for a comfortable burrow. Produced in a variety of scents, including roadkill, anal glands, and food waste, opossum fainting couches are sure to make you feel right at home. Handkerchief and smelling salts sold separately. Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, Teague. Oh, jeez. Oh, I'm No, I'm not Teague. Forget <laughs> it. Uh, I'm Professor Iwiki. Oh, we're leaving that in. I'm <laughs> Professor Iwiki, and I am a naturalist and educator with Crow's Path here in Burlington, Vermont. And I'm here with Glenn Etter. And Glenn Etter is a collector for Jack and Jill's Museum of Fainting Couches. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. Teague, I mean Professor Iwiki. Yes, that's right. Respect the honorific. <laughs> Do you know what a fainting couch is? I, I've yeah, I've heard of it. Because I'm pretty sure it's a couch that I'm not positive because I'm a museum collector of them. It's uh, well, the traditionally they're thought of as couches that if someone felt faint, they could go to recover. So they're soft. You know, you could have a little cushion that you can prop your legs up. And it was big back in the 1800s when there were a lot of paranormal paranormal. Phenomena was big in the 1800s. I don't know if you knew that. So there were a lot of ghosts and people fainted a lot. Yeah, you said that was a traditional use. So what's the modern use? Well, the modern use, um, you know how you sometimes have to reboot your computer to (laughs) get it to to work better? So we have this, it's sort of like electroshock therapy, but it's gentler. So we have some friends of mine dress up as different things, like like ghosts or zombies or ghouls or something. And they pop out and the goal is to like, you know, you come in there, we get people kind of nervous and they faint. And then we have all these vintage fainting couches that they can faint upon and then recover upon and then when they wake up they feel better oh so it's sort of yeah a mix of like therapy and uh yeah. historical reenactment yeah and 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 you know museum for the tax credit yeah <laughs> we get a, pretty sure we get a tax credit for the museumness of us yeah you definitely do yeah um great well i think there's lots to go off of your experience there that'll help in our discussion today which we're talking about who are we talking Uh, about well i've got a quiz for you Uh, okay you probably already know but chances are i've had my mind rebooted a lot so i'm pretty fresh you you retain all the knowledge you had before but i'm able to access it oh wonderful Okay, great. So you're going to be on top of your game. So uh, we're going to talk about the Virginia opossum, Didelphus mm. virginiana. And I have a quote here from a zookeeper. I want you to just true or false if you think that the zookeeper is talking about Virginia opossums or something else. Okay. All right, you ready? Yes. They show extreme intelligence, even problem-solving <laughs> intelligence, especially the big one. That one, when she looks at you, you can she- see she's working things out. That's why we have to feed them like this. She had them all attacking the fences when the feeders came. Okay, I'm going to be honest. 
I had an internet glitch at the very end, and I didn't hear the very end of it. But as soon as you said <laughs> they're intelligent, I think it's not about the possum. Yeah. I, I love opossums, but I don't think they're known for their brain power. And I think it was probably about a particularly intelligent insect, like a praying mantis or. Okay, well, you a said that they're not. Cricket. They're not known for their intelligence, but that Correct. is in the sort of idiosyncratic understanding of opossums. And this is from someone who's a little bit more informed than the average Joe, <laughs> who is a zookeeper. So good point. Don't let your or the average Joey. assumptions. Yeah, call yeah, the Joey is a baby possum. I do. Um, and do you know what the adults are called? Josephs. <laughs> no. Well, I would assume that uh, Jack and Jill's Museum of Fainting Couches, you... <laughs> we have a lot of possums running around. That's part of the fainting. Yeah. They're good. At, they play dead and drool and things. And people yeah. sometimes. Uh, well, the adults, the males are called Jacks and the females are called Jills. Wow. And possums also like to faint. So I just thought maybe your museum was very clever, but it turns out you're no, not that's half true. as sometimes... clever as the animal the zookeeper is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes the possums come out to try to make someone faint, you know, and, and then mm. the possums faint. And then we have little cute little couches for them. Yeah. No, I, I happen to know that I believe biologically possums' brains are very small compared to their body. Like one-fifth the size of a raccoon brain. They're about that's... the same. Yeah. Now, they may be compact, you know, like... Uh, like syrup, so they're more <laughs> condensed and strong. <laughs> but then again, do you really want a syrup brain? Yeah. So I'm going to say maybe it was about possums, but in general, it would be an unusual possum that was so intelligent. Well, it, it, you're right. It's uh, not yes. actually about... Uh, this is a, <laughs> a quote from Robert Muldoon, who is the zookeeper in Jurassic Park, who's responsible for tending <laughs> to the velociraptors. So I thought it sounded familiar. Yeah. Although, when the internet went out, I don't even know what the end of it was. And that I think our matter. listeners want me to ask you, so I'm just going to no. say that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, velociraptors, they are not. I love possums. I If... If I had a spirit animal, I'm almost positive it would be an opossum. They're just fantastic creatures. My dad was a veterinarian in Southern California, and uh, we had, this was back in the, uh, like, probably 1990 or something, and we had a, a, not a pet possum, but we had a possum that we were rehabilitating, and then we went down to San Diego, and we released it, and I just, I can remember watching this frumpy, awkward little beast scuffle <laughs> off into the woods and just Did it like, remind you a little of yourself too? Is that what you're totally. Talking there, yeah. uh, so one of the things that I want not to do uh, on this podcast is try and justify or like over make the case for the animal because they have definitely gotten a lot of flack for being dumb and being awkward and ugly and hideous and all this stuff and foul smelling. So I don't want to like justify why I think they're important ecologically to try and make up for <laughs> people's perceptions of them. <laughs> well, we can defend but, the possum a little bit, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think we can educate about the possum. Against, against unkind myths, for example. Yeah. But it seems like I, I've had quite a few interactions with possums, opossums. We'll talk about this in a second when we talk about taxonomy. I prefer possum. It's faster. It's faster it's to say. Way faster. And I just don't have time. And then what if you want to say, oh, a possum? Then it's confusing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to say my O for Obama. So <laughs> back in 2008, when Obama won his first election, on the night where, you know, on election night, uh, we had a bunch of people over and we were all hanging out. And then I had to take out the compost. And when I went out to take the compost out, they had just called the election for Obama. 
and it was incredible. You could just hear, uh, I was in Burlington at the time, and you could just hear people honking horns, people coming outside of their houses and hooting and hollering. It was just like this. Wow, super, it was a great moment. It was a great moment, and the the city just lit up like immediately. It, it just felt so powerful, and I was taking out the, the compost, and I just... And I'm in this city, but I'm the last house on this dead end street. And I have a little strip of forest. I have a strip of forest behind me. And so there's this sort of little dark corner there. And uh, I looked up on the fence for some reason. Something just caught my attention. And I look up and there's a possum that was on the top railing, the horizontal bar on the top of the fence. And it was just standing there licking the fence. (laughs) <laughs> I like I couldn't figure out for the life of me. It was completely oblivious to everything around it. I was right next to it and definitely making a lot of noise and I just walked right up and it never once acknowledged my presence. It was just licking it the was fence. Into the fence. It was a fence licker. It was a fence licker. That was probably a celebration for a possum, you know. <laughs> I guess so. What are you do? Just like lick a fence. I'm going to start doing that when things go really well. Yeah. If I'm near a fence, or maybe I'll, if I see one nearby, I could run to it. Start. I don't know if that would go over so well if, <laughs> if people I didn't know so well. Yeah. It might be uh, when my friends are around. Well, I mean, they're solitary creatures, so maybe they're not super they're not. concerned about what other, they're just, they do yeah, that. They do their own thing. Yeah. And if I did it now, I could, I could then tell the story you're telling. It'd be heart- heartwarming. <laughs> yeah. Why are you licking that fence? Well, thank you for asking. Yes. I also, Obama, Opossum. Probably yeah. a link there already. They Definitely. Kinship. But there's something in that, that interaction that it's just, they're so impenetrable. You know, like a, a part of my work as a naturalist and an educator is to educate people to the point where they can more deeply empathize with the non-human world. And so trying to understand what the experience of time and place is like for a tree or for peregrine falcons or crows or whatever other animals and there's just something so it's not going to happen with a possum saying. about yeah. they're impenetrable they're, yeah they're eternal they're just, mysteries they are they're very very strange strange creatures yeah so maybe we can kind of just sort of run through some of the uh right. we'll do the taxonomy first then we'll cover some of the life history stuff and try and, and from, shed some light and i'm sure you're going to get to this right but they're originally from south america right so they're not from around here. Yeah, maybe they're not. Maybe that makes them so odd. Yeah. I think the last time we did Kingdom Phylum Class Order Family Genus Species and the acronym was King Philip Came Over for Good Soup. Mm-hmm. One of my, I have my students every semester come up with different. Make up a new one. Nice. Yeah, make up a new one. And someone came up with keep pond clean or froggy gets sick, <laughs> which I <laughs> like. So Kingdom, Animalia, no surprise. Phylum, Chordata. We're in that class, mammalia, we're also animals. Yeah, we're brothers and sisters with them. And then under class, it sort of splits into three different groups. There are the monotremes, which are the weirdest of the weird. So that's the platypuses and echidnas. And then there's another clade or group called the marsupials, which are pouched mammals like kangaroos, wombats, sugar gliders, koalas. And they are marsupials. And then the third group is placental mammals, which is what we belong to. And the marsupials, the sort of biodiversity center for them is in Australia. It's thought now because they're fossils that have been discovered in North America. So the origins of the marsupial lineage are North American. 
We'll get there in a second. Nice. And Take that, Australia. They took a lot of our marsupials, apparently. They're mostly there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, mostly there. Um, and so the order for possums is Didelphomorphia. You'll see that it's sort of a common ending for the order of mammals is either Formis or Morphia, which just means the shape. Um, so the Virginia possum is in Didelphomorphia in the family Didelphidae. There are about 110 species of various types of opossums in that. And then with the Virginia possums, are they're like rat possums and or opossums and some other ones. But then in the Didelphus genus, which is what are the large American possums are, is a genus. There are six species. They all play possum. They all have prehensile oh. tails. Nice. And then we're talking about Didelphus virginiana. There should be a competition, I think, between them. Just to all play possum at the same time when judges rate their performance. Or just It would just be fun to see six different species, to me. All passing out in very different Passing out ways. in their own way. Of course, I own a fainting museum, so of course I'd be interested in that. <laughs> Question, Teague. Yeah. Delph, what is the Delphus? The die means two, but what about the Delph? Delphus comes from Delphi in ancient Greece. The oracle? Yeah, the oracle at Delphi was uh, a temple. And supposedly there was a crack in the temple where these like vapors would come up. And so the oracles would all be huffing these vapors from uh, the <laughs> earth. Uh, but it was also sort of the, the wound. stoned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would all get oh, stoned. Oh, no, that's then, a like, vapor from the earth. That's not our smoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, and so this is the, the womb or the center of the earth. And so Di means two and Delphus means womb. And so there are two wombs that, uh, so all of the, uh, a lot of marsupials have this, but they have this sort of forked vagina where it corresponds with the forked penis of the males. So Di Delphus means two wombs. And then Virginiana, whatever you see, Anna or Annis on the end of a scientific name, it means from that place. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it's from that place, but that's where it's first described. There are a bunch of Carolinianas, yeah, Virginianas. Oh. I know this is a kid-friendly show, so I don't want to go into the forked anatomy too much, but is that a, is that a unique to opossums that they have a forked penis and vaginas? Yeah, it's so funny. Like, I, I'm not squeamish at all. Like, with my son, you know, we find roadkill occasionally and, like, He's three, and I have no problem pointing out, like, the penis or the teats or the testes or vagina or whatever, yeah. the anatomical parts. So if you're a kid, you should be fascinated yeah, in everything about no, the natural I gave world, my, so. my son a work stuffed penis animal for Christmas once. <laughs> okay, I didn't, I didn't actually do that. We might have to take that out. <laughs> yeah, that, that part will edit but, out. But, yeah, squeamish. You're right. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Let's talk about that once we get towards the end. But, uh, before we go into the next part, I just wanted to clarify because I mentioned opossum versus possum. I had some friends visiting and this was the summer and one of them was like, we just found out that opossums are different animals from possums, uh, which is kind of true and kind of not true. So if you're reading scientific literature, opossum is the correct pronunciation and uh, spelling of this animal, Didelphus virginiana and all of the American opossums. And then if you are talking about similar looking animals, possums, then what you're talking about, in, at least in scientific literature, would be talking about phalangeridae or phalangeriformes, phalangeriformes which are Australian marsupials that have a sort of superficial uh, similarity to opossums. opossums. Yeah, and so opossums were 
it comes from an Algonquin uh, word, actually, Powhatan, which is a type of Algonquin dialect, which or combined from two words, op, which means white, and then awesome, which means either dog or beast or animal. Or yeah. animal. I heard it meant white dog or white beast. Yeah, so these were, you know, Europeans that came over and heard this word for this animal, and then presumably naturalists that were then traveling to Australia went there in the 1700s after you know, the first possums were recorded in the 1600s by Europeans, then went to Australia, saw these other animals with uh, opposable thumbs and prehensile tails, and were like, wow, these look a lot like opossums. And then somewhere along the way, the O was dropped from it. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, when you talk about plain possum, that comes from the technically opossum, but who cares, (laughs) right? It's the common, you know, it's the common term. Yeah. Uh, there's a botanist who says common names are for common people. Uh, <laughs> and there's well, so much confusion with, yeah, with common names that... I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah. being a commoner. I used to be royalty, and then yeah. <laughs> I left. There's too much paparazzi, so yeah, I absconded. Yeah, so I guess uh, moving on from taxonomy, maybe the next thing is to... Last time when we were talking about peregrine falcons, we had a major fact, and our major fact was related to... So this is part of this series or exploration that we've been doing of urban wildlife and how animals have adapted to city living and some of the adaptations they have that make them so successful in urban environments where they might not be as successful in non-urban environments. And so for these different species profiles, this is our our third now, and each one we're trying to highlight some fact about that species that is our major fact that ties in directly with urban wildlife. Uh, our major fact for Virginia opossums is that they should not be here. Wow. This what? is... <laughs> you mean that morally? Like, they don't deserve <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be here? It seems harsh. I texted my sister before this and I was like, hey, you got any questions about uh, possums? And she's like, yeah, why? Why possums? <laughs> why? <laughs> they just seem, yeah, sort of improbable. <laughs> you know, we're, we're probably... I get that sometimes too about myself. I yeah. Why Glenn? Parties. Why? why Glenn? He shouldn't yeah. be here. <laughs> but we're glad you are. Just same for the possums. <laughs> Thank you. The question is for us, New England-centric, where we're in New England, but my story from California was the same thing about why possums in California? Why are they in these places that if we look at historical records uh, or the fossil record, they weren't found in these different environments, right? So the current distribution of Virginia opossums is from southern Canada, so sort of like from coast to coast along the border, the southern extent of Canada, all the way down to Costa Rica and most places in between. And then if you look at the pre-colonial distribution maps, they basically don't get any farther north than Maryland and then sort of edging over sort of this bow that arcs from Maryland over to Ohio, southern tip of Indiana, then southern tip of Illinois, and then kind of peters out down into Texas and then down into the eastern part of Central America. And so that's a pre-colonial distribution, which is far more reduced than what it is currently. Yeah, no New England, no California. No New England, no California. Um, yeah, no Oregon, no Canada. And so the species, if, you know, describing what the species looks like in its adaptations, it's definitely a more Southern species that's not evolved at all for dealing with cold climates. 
So the major effect of opossums should not be here for most parts of the North America where they are found. Yeah, it's kind of a, a little bit of a question mark of, well, how did opossums get to expand their range so quickly? And mostly since the, the probably like late 1800s. Wow. So what are some of the, the common reasons that animals escape their, their historic ranges and expand it? They're still away on ships, you know, and then they arrive at a place where no one's expecting them. They have no predators and they go hog wild. Yeah, totally. Norway rats, yeah. I'm guessing that uh, for possums, opossums, that, you know, cities are warmer, so they were able to use the heat and food from the cities to help them make it through the winter. I'm not sure how that ties into Southern California or why they weren't there before. Maybe they had to get over some mountains, so they hopscotch through some cities to get there. I don't know. Yeah. They, there are a lot of animals that can't make it through the interior of the continent. And so, there, you know, there's forest on the East Coast, there's forest on the West Coast, uh, and, like, the Rocky Mountains has a bunch of forest, and the Appalachian Mountain chain has a bunch of forest. And then in between you have these open grasslands, prairies, or savannas where it's a very different habitat and it's a very large, uh, large expanse of land that the animal would have to cross to get from one suitable habitat to the other. Right. Maybe the wagon trains, you know, all those pioneer kids <laughs> with their pet possums. Can't afford a dog, but you got a possum, Jim, huh? <laughs> yeah. Look at it. <laughs> Don't pet it. Don't pet it. It'll bite you. Yeah, a slightly stereotyped accent there for our southern immigrants. I'm from the south. I am from the south. Um, But that's actually one of the big reasons is actually, so uh, in Southern California in 1890 is the first records of opossums being transported from Tennessee from people that were (laughs) emigrating from Tennessee to Southern California. Yeah, they brought with them opossums. And so the question was, so you mentioned stowaways on boats initially. And there's this one publication, I think it's called like Virginia Possum, an amazing animal or something like that. It's got all this amazing information in it, but it doesn't have citations for a lot of it. <laughs> but it it's a it it, so it's it not a peer reviewed article, but it is published by a, a research biologist. And so it seems credible, but there were a bunch of stu- things in there that I was reading that I couldn't find any verification of. So he says that some of them or they, it's a husband and wife couple, uh, Krauss, something. It's like William Krauss and Winifred Krauss or something like that. But they say that Virginia possums were probably stowaways on trains. And so they've expanded their territory just by uh-huh. being stowaways. And so I was looking up research and I saw some uh, photos of opossums on subways in New York City. <laughs> and <laughs> they were they standing so up like at their little paw on the, on the, the pole, you know, <laughs> themselves. Yeah. Reading the newspaper. Don't make eye contact with others. Would they ever ride on the top of the train, do you think? Like a train robber kind of goes up there with the loot like oh my god possum we kind of bounce around a little bit in these where <laughs> i have like a, a flow of, that i imagine and then we just kind of talk about everything all at once but we haven't really talked about their physical description but they do have if you ever see their tracks in the snow whenever i see tracks that just look like six-year-old jackson pollock painted them <laughs> i'm always <laughs> like oh that's a <laughs> that's an opossum <laughs> they just have the messiest sloppiest looking hands they have their front paws are very hand-like. They have these long fingers that have that have finger prints, so right. little grippies on them. Good for holding and a then they, subway pole, for example. If you're riding for, yeah, exactly, for holding subway poles. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and then their hind feet are, they have this 
it's a hallux, which is basically the thumb on the rear foot, and it is opposable and really, really competent at gripping things. So climbing up subway poles specifically. <laughs> uh, and Or gripping a train from the top of the train. Yeah, and so that's Hold what I was thinking tight. about. Is like, And they also have these prehensile tails. And I think part of the reason why they get so vilified is because they have naked tails. And it seems like, you know, we would much it's rather a cuddle a squirrel than we would a rat for most like a people. naked mole rat. Uh, and rats have naked tails and squirrels have lovely furry tails. Now, I've heard that that part of what limits their range is their tail, right? That it's vulnerable to frostbite or cold, their naked yeah. tail. Yeah. Uh, just to wrap that up, I was just going to say that their pre or their naked tails are more grippy than a furred tail would be, and so they have prehensile tails, which means they can grab onto things. So th- they'll den underground or in logs, and they'll carry sticks and leaves in their prehensile tails. I'll also use them to balance while they're cl- uh, climbing. They don't really suspend from them as adults because they're too heavy and their tails are not quite strong enough, um, but the juveniles will hang but They from can them. carry things. So you can yeah. imagine if you had a pet possum, which we don't recommend for wild animals, no. but you could teach it to kind of prehensile its tail around a beer and bring you one from the fridge. <laughs> totally. You could definitely it's do a that. a lightweight, a small one. Yeah. Wait, so, so what was your, your question about prehensile tails just a second ago? Well, I did mention that it might limit their range. Oh, that I, that's what I was going to say. I, I had another encounter with them in uh, my backyard. This is, well, just in this woods adjacent to my backyard. So they have sort of a kind of a gross fur. Uh, it's not particularly attractive. <laughs> hey, value judgment. Come I know. On. So they have this it's long sort of... Them bristly looking grayish yellowish fur there's variability they tend to be darker to the south and lighter to the north and there's some different like white variants of them so they're furred but then their tails are naked and their hair or their ears are also naked and the one that i saw in my backyard was on this uh, norway maple sapling it probably had been chewed by a gray squirrel and the sap was flowing out of it and the possum again was just kind of like licking it and oblivious to my presence and i just walked right <laughs> well, i up thought to it was it. a fence yeah uh yeah <laughs> why isn't this thing a fence <laughs> i can't and, climb this thing and so it was like licking it presumably the sap or maybe there were insects on the the sapling but its ears and the tip of its tail were blackened and totally mangled from ah, frostbite. frostbite and that's a, a common limiting thing is there any kind of organization that tries to get them little <clears throat> little like sleeves for their tails out in the wild and little earmuffs to put them on just to help them make it through our winters because they're doing a I, service I right they do the lots thought. of service for the for the forest for the forest community i imagine well what do you think they do i think they get eaten a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I, they're food for other things i went today to the there's a, a place called the american opossum society or something like that um and they, they claim that possums also, opossums are very, you know, they're beneficial because they eat a lot of pests. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, possums require a lot in the PR department just because of their <laughs> physical deficiencies. <laughs> Part of the reason that they were transported from the East Coast to the West Coast was for their fur, believe it or not. They were used for wow. really cheap like substitutes. Cheap for, skin hat, yeah. For, well, for lining uh, like the brim of a coat or a hood on a, a jacket. Um, but they're also uh, were a, not a delicacy, but a staple of a lot of people's yeah, diet. Yeah, in Tennessee, sort of, possum and taters. They've fallen out of favor because they were always associated with like 
really poor quality or like low quality fur like in the 70s you would get two dollars and fifty cents a pelt or something which was not that much money at all <laughs> right and their meat has kind of fallen out of favor and so there's they've just kind of been a pest and then they've also been wrongfully associated with like killing chickens and digging up people's gardens and stuff actually the they don't dig but they do eat people's gardens but so do lots of other things let's face yeah it. And so I think this is what I was getting at earlier, where I think that, you know, they need a PR campaign <laughs> to Maybe you could be. You could be bring that. it back. Yeah. This, this but I think people have, hopefully. But I think people have gone maybe a little bit too far. And maybe part of it comes from a lack of scientific literacy. But <laughs> there is if you look up like what do possum what are possums good for? You know, possums get rid of ticks and they'll solve our Lyme disease problems and stuff. And there's this one study where they uh, or it was an experiment where they took a few different types of animals and they strapped them down and then they released a hundred <laughs> ticks onto them and then they Unstrapped. so they strapped them down for four hours, let the ticks attach. Good lord, and then, that is cruel. Yeah, and then they monitored the tick abundance through time. And what they found with uh, possums is that it was about 95, 97%, something like that, of the ticks would get cleaned off of, so they w would not just get uh, removed from their fur or from being embedded, uh, but they would disappear. So presumably they were getting eaten. And if you look at stomach contents, ticks do show up occasionally in the stomachs of of opossums. So if you extrapolate out to, you know, the abundance or how much in, uh, food an opossum is taking in and how many ticks are in the environment. So the figure that, that these researchers came up with was about 5,000 ticks per year is what a opossum could consume in the environment, right? When I first heard this, uh, in my head, I imagined like my chickens go around and they'll pluck insects off of vegetation. And so I imagined, you know, like a chicken going around and actively foraging for or ticks. ticks. But that's not what happens. Like if a tick gets embedded in a in a possum, then they'll they'll munch it away. Yeah, they'll munch it away. Are they taking it off of other animals ever? No, because we, no. <laughs> we have the problem, you know, up here in the Northeast with the moose are being terrorized by ticks. And I always thought if you could teach possums to ride on the back of a moose... Clean it off. Plus, it'd be cool visual. Potentially, yeah. A cartoon. That's a much better idea. Basis I was just thinking. I was just thinking about yeah, trying to contradict people that were <laughs> overstating the case, and you are taking it to the next level. Yeah, but like, how can that be true? How could that? How could we make that be more true? Get a bunch of possums wearing tail sleeves and little earmuffs wearing riding moose. I think it would bring more tourism to the area. And I think it's great. Protect against Lyme disease. So yeah, so I've been knitting. I've been knitting some tail sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with great. my son. Yeah, the way we give back. That sounds good. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, you could. I mean, they're definitely performing a service. It's not like they're eating zero ticks. So they are, but they're not actively foraging in the environment for ticks. But they are presumably making yeah a dent in the population. I mean, yeah, it, and what if you they get would need a lot to of ticks, do. right? If they're tick magnets, we might call them, and then they clean them off. Yeah, exactly. Some, somewhat, somewhat. Yeah, what you would need to do is look at areas where there's higher concentrations of possums and see what the abundance of ticks is like in that area and then also test those for Lyme disease uh, and then check in an area where they're getting all scientific on his teeth. I know that's what you'd have to do. And that has not been done uh, to this point. So we don't know necessarily what the scale of their impact is, but it could be positive. They are tend not to be carriers of Lyme disease. They also get maligned for being a vector for rabies, which they can in the wild have rabies, but it's virtually absent from populations of possums. But they're definitely 
eaten, right? They're definitely eaten. There's lots of them and things eat them. Yeah, that's a definitely. Service. It's the ultimate sacrifice for your ecosystem. Uh, yeah, they are prey for a bunch of things. They are mostly nocturnal. I've seen them during the day and I've also seen them at dawn and dusk, but they're mostly nocturnal. And so they are going to be primarily eaten by nocturnal predators. So bobcats, foxes, coyotes, uh, also great horned owls will take them. There's some reports of like mink taking down a possum, what? which is kind of crazy. So possums like are... A fourth of its size. Yeah, possums are... The there's sexual dimorphism, so the males are slightly larger than the females. Males are like six, seven pounds on average. Uh, females are about four to five pounds, and mink are so much smaller than that. They're like <laughs> squirrel sized. So it's pretty crazy to think of yeah, squirrel taking down a large, full grown cat. But uh, yeah, they it's can like do those it. internet videos of a chihuahua chasing an elephant. Seen that? Hilarious. I don't think it took uh, it down though. I don't think it yeah, ate the elephant. Probably not. <laughs> Uh, I was, you know, in terms of other ecosystem services, there's so it, it can be hard to observe large carnivores out in the field. And so getting population estimates and also getting an understanding of what those carnivores are eating. One of our biggest clues is from looking at scat. Uh, and so you can look in the scat to see what seeds are in there, what bones are in there, there's what like feathers a are in there. Frostbitten opossum tail would be a giveaway. Yeah, exactly. However, possums make it really tough to do those studies and so these researchers wanted to figure out what was the like rate of disappearance of scat on a landscape so that they could get a sense of like how much scat are we observing based on how much scat is getting scooped up and eaten by things right and then they'd be able to get a more accurate sen sense of what the populations are right because um, you can figure out how many times a day an animal is going to bathroom et cetera. Et cetera. So uh, what they did is they had these different trapping stations. I think this is in Kansas. They would set out from captive bred bobcats and coyotes. They would set out their scat at these little forest sites, and then they monitored them over the course of a full year. Did they strap anything down? They strapped some possums down and released them? <laughs> yeah. Seems like a part of the studies on possums. Yeah, no, they, they fortunately, no possums <laughs> were strapping. harmed in this, uh, okay. but possums were happily and well fed. So it turns out that like possums were far and away the most abundant visitors and consumers scat of the scat. They're scat eaters. They're, they're poop eaters. Um, That's why they fillers. grin. Yeah, they're always happy. They're by far the biggest poop eating mammal we have. Yeah. We wow. Uh, and so, yeah, so for, for some of these piles, it was, you know, less in the spring for uh, scat, but then in the summer it would make up to 50% or not 50% of the diet, but 50% of the scat would disappear in the summer. And that might just be a, a fact that there are more possums in the summer than there are in the spring. They tend to breed from February through July. And so, yeah, you're going to have more weaned individuals on the landscape that could I be heard eating. they can give birth to 20 litter of 20 yeah up to 20 although they only have did you know this they have 13 nipples right yeah. inside there and so only 13 joeys can survive it's like the race to the nipples yeah and the top 13 if you're 14th or lower yeah it's, it's not uh, good it's, typically with mammals that have nipples. So I mentioned monotremes earlier. Monotremes are really primitive mammals and echidnas have sweat glands on their back that are modified to milk glands. What? So they secrete milk out their backs and then platypuses yeah, their babies just their secrete sweat. it, like sweat it out their uh, <laughs> bellies. 
Um, basically, nipples are congregations of modified sweat glands that secrete huh. milk. But with mammals, it's mostly, it's almost all of them are uh, in pairs, right? There's bilateral symmetry. And so you have an even number of nipples. But then with possums, for whatever reason, it's odd. It's radial, right? I thought it was radial. They have 12 in a circle and one in the middle. Yeah, it's sort of U-shaped. Which shape, I call yeah. the bullseye. Oh, U-shaped. The, the okay. bullseye. With pigs, so the uh, nipples that are closest to the head are the most productive nipples. And in and the smartest. <laughs> the smartest nipples? Well, or they're the closest smartest? to the brain. Yeah, the smartest yeah, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd want to ask them on um, trivia night. You'd want them on your team. Yeah. It was, so it's interesting. I, I don't know if this is true with possums that... The nipple in the center, the bullseye, is <laughs> the most, most productive. Productive. That's a good question. But they studied. What I was going to talk about with other mammals is usually the ratio is it's called the one half rule, where if uh, if you have two nipples, you typically give birth to one offspring, and the maximum litter size is two, except for in really freak instances. So humans, we give birth to singletons, and Twinning is common, but having triplets almost never happens without, you know, some sort of fertility treatment, right? And so the idea is that if you have one, two nipples, then you can easily accommodate the, and we're bilaterally, uh, we have bilateral symmetry. So it, it would make sense if we only have one, we would still get two nipples, not we. Um, <laughs> as a male, I will never <laughs> we, use we the nipples that I have. Probably not. Yeah. So then there it, there are very, very few exceptions to this. And so the marsupials tend to be the ex- exceptions where they off, they're often marsupials that give birth to far more individuals than they have uh, nipples. nipples to accommodate. This is sort of like the big question of what advantage is there to giving birth to more babies than you could ever wean successfully? I don't know. I mean, is it like the little race? Like you, you find out what your strongest babies are right away <laughs> because they have their race to the nipple and you yeah. got their winners and maybe they're a little healthier than the other ones. I don't know. It seems very cruel to me, Yeah. but I don't want to apply my standards to their nipple, <laughs> yeah. nipply traditions. Yeah. What do you uh, think? So I, I, well, I think it's like 20% of the embryos or not they're called living embryos where basically they're just so immature and underdeveloped that they are completely helpless other than the ability to climb out of the birth uh, canal and find their way to a nipple nipple. and yeah so it's basically a race so there's competition among the offspring to get to to get to a nipple the female has uh, scent glands that sort of cue in the living embryos, the little babies, the joeys, to crawl in the right direction of the nipples. But like 10 to 20% of them get lost along the way, never oh, no. make it to a nipple. Yeah. Um, for those <laughs> that do get there. I get lost on the way to the grocery store still sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness I didn't have to do this. Yeah, you never would have been a possum, mm-hmm. um, or at least an adult a possum. Would have been a very short-lived just an embryo. Yeah. So then once they find their way to the nipple, the nipple will swell inside the baby's mouth. And 
you know, there are a lot of myths around opossums and reproductions. The females, or it used to be thought that the females would sneeze into her pouch and give birth through her nose. They have these, <laughs> they look like little pigs, sort of. They have these pig-like really? pink noses. Yeah. And they have two nostrils, not surprisingly, but they, they have a forked womb. And so... Maybe somehow this forked yeah. penis, forked womb, they make their way up they to the They have some tunnels, nose. like those things you put in the bank, you know? You put in this little pneumatic tubes and shunk, and then come to the <laughs> yes. nostril, and then boom, right, <laughs> right into, into the pouch. pouch. Yeah. yeah, that is not true. Then it'd be like they get to fly a little bit. It'd be, the race would be a little bit airborne. Um, <laughs> I would worry be about pretty thrilling. airborne droplets in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> that would be thrilling to watch in slow motion. So you want to successfully wean your offspring. Right. So you want to be able to successfully reproduce. You want to successfully gestate. So gestation after successful reproduction, gestation is only 12, 13 days, which is among the shortest in the animal kingdom and or at least in the, the mammal, the class of mammals. Yeah. So the super short gestation period and then they give birth to all these different joeys that are racing up to these the nipples. And then there's a high attrition rate. But do you want, okay, just to interrupt quickly, do you want, you want to wean your babies, but what you want most of all is for those, the ones you wean to be able to go reproduce, right, themselves. So you want, you want strong ones. You want strong offspring. Yeah, you want, definitely want strong offspring. So their, their offspring, when they climb out of the birth canal, essentially, uh, they are about the size of a honeybee. So they're really, really, really small. A penny weighs like two and a half grams. And a joey, Virginia possum, weighs 0.13 grams, right? So what is that? 200. You could, (laughs) it's like 200 of these weighs as much as a penny, uh, or 20 of these. So each individual offspring is extremely cheap, right? You're just producing a, a little, you know, honeybee. And if you are a four or five pound female opossum, that's very little of your body weight. And so each one of the offspring costs the the animal almost nothing. And so if the female has the offspring compete and demonstrate their fitness, their strength, their ability to grow quickly and successfully uh, survive, then those are going to be the strongest individuals. And so they have competition amongst the litter very, very early on so that they don't have to invest as much energy later. It's crazy to think about but the average lifespan of a possum is 18 months yes yeah, they hardly ever live more years. than two years right yeah and it's not just cars it's not just because of cars where i grew up in tennessee boy you saw a lot of possums along the road they were a popular oh definitely definitely so i think they're also feeding you know ravens and vultures if you wanted to do a scientific study and other possums other. <laughs> oh no really Are yeah cannibalized so i have i'm just looking up here i've been collecting data on roadkill and i have 182 records for the year this year because it's yeah, only just january 18th uh no sorry uh Dang. for the last for okay. the last like 12 months okay. or probably nine months i think i have 182 records 52 of them are gray squirrels which is not surprising because those are the most abundant and 28 of them are possums oh so they're second right? so that's silver this, metal yeah they're the silver what's metal. third Third is, what is it? Raccoons are fourth. Skunks. Skunks, huh? Yeah. Yeah, 28 possums out of 182, 22 skunks, 17 raccoons. How many deer? Not very many. I think it's 
two or three? Three. You can put this in, in the show notes. You can find table Teague's Roadkill. Yeah, kill. Oh, yeah I'll put that in there. How many species are there? On, on the my list? Yeah. I have, I don't know, 30. Do you get excited when there's one you've never seen before? It's like a lifer. I got a lifer. I did. I just found a chickadee the other week. Chickadee. Yeah, I did have a very small shrew. I just do shrews to species or to the family of shrews. Owls? Yeah. Probably some owls, right? Yep. Seven owls, seven barred owls. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe a lot of stuff dying a, out a on the roadkill episode. I feel like yeah, we could do a whole that's what our thing listeners want. <laughs> yeah, so so essentially having a super short gestation period of just 12 or so days and then uh, having intense competition. Uh, amongst their siblings uh, means that most of the competition for a really short-lived animal happens before the animal is independent. So only the ones that the mother invests energy in weaning are going to be the ones that are healthy, that are fit, and that can successfully compete uh, in the environment. So it sounds efficient to me. It works for them. Yeah, but part of the strange things is like these animals are really slow they're kind of these lumbering beasts you would think that maybe like a slow moving animal as opposed to like a frenetic mouse or shrew that lives you know maybe a year uh, at most would have a longer lifespan but they have such a short lifespan <laughs> why so, is that Teague? professor well, uh, professor tiggy wiggy professor <laughs> yeah whatever it is not Totally clear. There's this researcher, Stephen Ostad, who found an island off the coast of Georgia that had a population that had been in isolation for maybe four or 5,000 years from large mammalian carnivores. And so there was no real selective pressure on the, uh, the, the possums. And so some of the stresses of life and had been removed and the lifespan, the expected lifespan had doubled. It's like basically if there are a bunch of predators, you have a really high chance of getting eaten in your first year before you're smart and experienced and uh, have a, a solid understanding of where food is, where hiding spots are, and just the lay of the land. Possums they're in tests of possums in mazes possums do where they every day they put an animal in a maze and it has the same path it has to take to get to a food source and Which possums in their case do, is probably just a pile of poop right for the a possum. pile of poop yeah right. uh, bobcat poop <laughs> <laughs> delicious possums do really 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 well on it uh they do better than dogs they do better than what? mice wow rats yeah so they're really good at Amazing. Navigating their world, but also they have long memories. There's another study where they were these researchers were uh, feeding different types of fungi to possums and seeing if they would be able to detect if something was toxic and then be able to discern a toxic from a lookalike that was edible. And so they're f feeding them fly agarics and then lookalikes, and the fly agarics are toxic. And so they would take a bite and then sort of get a look of distaste uh, <laughs> and spit it out. And then up to a year later, they could remember that from scent that that mushroom was the wow. one that tasted bad and made them sick. And they were able to, yeah. Maybe so they have really great memories. They just don't live very long, so they, they don't have that many memories. So the ones they have. <laughs> That's true. They've only got like yeah. five memories. You're going to be able to access it. Yeah, that could be part of it. <laughs> so 
they have this incredible ability to learn really quickly about their environment. They don't have territories. Like, they're not... They don't have, like, a circle that you could draw around their range. They basically are these solitary wanderers that roam around a landscape. They'll perch up in, like, a hollow log or a skunk or woodchuck den for a little while, but then they'll move on pretty quickly. Uh, And so they're constantly going from place to place. They need to be able to investigate new things, figure out an environment really quickly, and then move on. And eventually they'll circle back and come back to the same place. But because... They are wandering into new landscapes. They are encountering new food sources that might be toxic, might be more fatal than the flag eric's. <laughs> and they're also encountering predators. There's this push that kind of bookends the life cycle of prey animals to a very narrow window. So it's surprising because a possum is as large as a cat and cats live much, much longer. So it seems surprising they would only live one to two years on average. But if you think of them as prey in the same way that a rabbit is a prey animal, rabbits can be reproductively active three, four months old and then have multiple breeding cycles within a year. And it's the same with possums where they can be reproductively active at three or four years old and then uh, they'll have two, possibly three breeding cycles during that first year that guarantees or not guarantees but increases the likelihood that they'll reproduce and successfully wean young before getting killed by a predator how long do rabbits what's their lifespan rabbits i think do slightly better i mean in captivity they can be seven eight years or so and then in the wild it's uh one to two. Oh, i see third yeah. possums even in captivity they don't they typically just don't make it that long. No, they don't. Yeah, I mean, that's... A, uh, so that was one of the interesting things is like with these uh, possums on this island is in the absence of predators, there's less pressure put on the animals to get everything done within that first year or two before they die from predation. And so they sort of stretch it out. They're able to you know, ingest more calories and put more energy into getting bigger body mass mass than than I they see. would otherwise. So um, normally, but in their normal situation, they're just fast forwarding their lives. It's cram in yeah. everything, get their reproduction out of the way because they're going to get eaten pretty soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they need to squirt um, out those joys. joys. Um, yeah, so it's really just like a, a race against the predatory clock, <laughs> trying to get everything done before you get eaten. <laughs> Kind of puts my problems in perspective, T. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have seventy-eight years to deal with I mean, your I problems. I think like I've got deadlines. You know, tax day's coming, but I'm not about to get eaten usually. That yeah. I know of. That I know of. Could be. Could be a lot worse. Um, we talked about reproduction, but maybe it's helpful to just back up a second and talk about courtship in the possums because uh, it's. I, don't, I bet I don't it's, know if it's slightly hilarious. Uh, maybe hilarious. <laughs> Maybe gross. So they're polygamous. Uh, so polygamous means that you have one individual mating with multiple other individuals. And then polygynous means poly. And then gynous means female. So many females. So you have one male that will mate with multiple females. I actually couldn't find any information because sometimes you'll have uh, an individual that will mate with multiple males. And then the offspring will be unrelated to each other. Uh, this actually happens with honeybees where the queen bee will mate with multiple drones and have 
variable genetics of her offspring. Yeah, sandpipers, I think solitary sand, uh, spotted sandpipers, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that. within a single clutch. I know that's true for some birds. Yeah, maybe not a single clutch. But yeah, so like koalas, which are a somewhat closely related type of marsupial, they have a sternal scent gland. So there's a like a, a gland. This is only on the males uh, on their sternum, their chest. And in the breeding season, the males will secrete this scent that is sort of musky, foul-smelling, and it kind of gets stained all over their chest and belly. (laughs) And then they'll wander around, and they make this constant clicking sound when they're in pursuit of females. So their courtship displays look really similar for whatever reasons, to uh, their response to predators. <laughs> so we talked about <laughs> predator pressures, and maybe we'll, we'll talk they, about their... Do they do the play dead thing as part of their courtship? They don't do the play dead thing, but they make the same sort of vocalizations and teeth chattering and stomping with their feet and stuff that they do uh, when they risk... Tail yeah, wiggling? Getting eaten. I heard that they can wiggle their tail to scare a predator in a snake-like fashion. I don't. I don't know if they wiggle their do that tail. To entice. Okay, that's too bad. But yeah, so uh, courtship. The females are sexually receptive. The breeding season as a whole is very long, but female receptivity is uh, only a week or ten days or so. So it's a pretty short window where the female is sexually receptive. Males have larger home ranges than females do on average, and are. Yeah, just going to be more actively in pursuit. And the, of being a nomad, one of the benefits. Yeah, and if a female is in heat, then the then males will be uh, physically aggressive. So they'll do the whole, the same series of courtship displays, but uh, aimed at other males to say, hey, I'm staking claim to this breeding ground, get out. And the displays will escalate sometimes into wrestling bouts. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which again, might be, make a good, reality tv show type thing yeah (laughs) possum wrestling that's right yeah backyard wrestling with possums (laughs) you could bet on your favorite you know it could be a could tie into sports betting yeah i got a great name for a possum wrestler and this would be our transition to yeah what we were kind of already talking about there uh thanatosis which sounds like a pretty cool strong name yeah it does like thanos like thanos right Deathbringer. And so thanatosis is this uh, state that mimics death. And so this is plain possum. So we're just talking about their courtship displays doing basically everything (laughs) that their predator response is just short of Of thanatosis, thanatosis, plain dead. They've already got the halitosis going with the poop eating. (laughs) Uh I feel like that's a gateway to the thanatosis. Yeah. Oh, I guess before we get too far away from reproduction, so they have a bifurcated penis, which we mentioned earlier, but they don't use their penis for peeing. All marsupials have a cloaca. So they have a separate instrument for, actually, it's, I guess, not technically a cloaca. A cloaca is one whole, one orifice that all all of... And all, yeah, so the reproductive tract is in there. It's like the Walmart of orifices. It's like the Walmart of (laughs) orifices. So your one-stop shop for reproduction (laughs) and elimination. And uh, and so they have an elimination hole, and they also have a reproductive hole. And so on the males, it's a bifurcated penis, and on the females, it's a bifurcated And then the birthing uh, hole of their nostrils when they sneeze into their <laughs> That's right. That is not true. <laughs> Good point. Sorry. Yeah. 
So playing possum is it's sort of it's hard to figure out exactly how successful this strategy is. There's certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence of the success of you know like people's dogs attacking possums shaking them around and then the possum just going totally limp and then not dog's not interested and then the dog's not interested there's sort of two different have you seen it happen sorry to interrupt but have you seen a possum do this i haven't have you no i i am surprised that i haven't because I had one encounter where I was uh, going through the woods at night and I was in the cedar hedgerow and I tripped on uh, a possum. possum. (laughs) I didn't actually fall over, but like I basically kicked it. And what I probably did is I probably put it into stage one of Thanatosis. (laughs) So essentially there are two different stages. There's what's called tonic immobility, which is a TI. This is basically a freezing response. And these are physiological responses. It's not necessarily a behavioral behavioral response and so in these you have probably experienced this with uh toads or frogs where with a lot of them if you flip them over on their backs and you look just hold them on their backs in your hand they'll basically lock up and freeze and they just go not limp but immobile right I first encountered this not in real life, but on TV when I was watching this documentary about sharks and I watched them flip this shark over on this show and then they made a little incision and they inserted like a GPS tracker or something into it and then they set it go. But when they flip over the shark, it goes into this tonic immobility where it's completely docile. And I guess it's part of a reproductive strategy where (laughs) males will flip female sharks over. Oh, and then they're helpless. Is that possible if you get attacked by one? Flip it real quick. It's I think it's a tough move. You would probably have to be larger than the shark to flip it, (laughs) in which case you probably wouldn't be getting attacked in the first place. Yeah, Um, too bad. Yeah. So uh, with the tonic immobility, there are some different responses that happen. Again, this is a physiological, not a behavioral response. And so there are associated physiological changes to the possum that happen are in the heart rate and the respiratory rate in this first stage if you just like go up and so this was one study that i looked at where they just they either had a dog go up to a possum or they had a human go up to the possum and their behavioral signs so chattering teeth clicking noises stomping feet stuff like that posturing if that was ineffective they would have this freezing response where their heart rate would drop 12 percent so what do you think a possum's heart rate is? Uh, I'm going to say not that fast. Maybe like 20 times a minute. I don't know. I was shocked. 218. What? Yeah. They're racing. They're so, terrified. That's why they don't live very long. So, uh, so it goes from 218 to about 192. And then the uh, respiratory rate, so inhales and exhales, goes down about 30%. Right. So that's in this first stage. And basically the animal's body is physiologically shutting down. And if you get into this death feigning stage, which is the plain possum, um, then the animal's totally immobile. Uh, They go down into a prone position. So they're laying down, their muscles tense up, they get totally stiff and their mouth often is open with their tongue hanging out and their eyes kind of glaze over (laughs) and, um, with this, they also will salivate, uh, urinate, defecate, uh, and then in males, oddly enough, uh, associated with reproduction, they get an erect penis. Really? So, uh, I was about yeah. to say, like, this sounds like a good strategy for a soccer player. You know, they've been fouled to do all this. 
Except for that last part. <laughs> Except for the last part, yeah. Well, I always thought if I was attacked by a bear rather than playing dead, I would just pretend I had rabies or something and just yeah, like go out crazy. of my mind, start salivating and peeing and pooping all over the place. That's what I do as a teacher the first day of class. They can think I'm crazy. Yeah, don't act up I'm not going to mess with you. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about the peeing and pooping everywhere part, though. Once yeah, again, that there's limits. There's limits. Might lead to Any other strategy. problems. <laughs> Very short job. Yeah. So with death feigning, uh, they have the same heart rate and respiratory rate drops, but they're way more dramatic. So heart rate will decrease 46%, so almost cut in half, down to about 120 beats a minute. And the respiratory rate goes down another 30% um, from the the first 30%. So about, what is that, whatever, like... Uh, 40-some percent decline in the respiratory rate. And then the other thing that happens is the body temperature also drops. So they have a pretty low body temperature to begin with, which is potentially why they don't carry rabies, uh, but their body temperature also drops. But one of the things that, to me, seems the most terrifying is that they don't go unconscious. So they're supposedly fully conscious. So this death feigning stage, this physiological response to a predator. Yeah. yeah. So if you, it, it lasts anywhere from like 40 minutes to four hours where they're immobile, incapacitated. Um, oh, and they also have this anal scent gland that they release this yeah, like foul, that. foul, foul smelling, <laughs> like green, yellow. Release the hounds. Yeah. And so if you're laying there in this catatonic state, and if you were unconscious, if a predator came up to you or there are any disturbances in the environment, that none of that would register. But if you monitor the heart rate during the death feigning of the animal, the heart rate during that will start to slowly climb back up. But if a dog comes back, then the heart rate will uh, drop again and reinduce this catatonic so they can stay state in or their like emphasize it. They can keep going back into it yeah. for a long time, for like hours, for days. You just kept bringing a dog back every 30 minutes. God forbid. What a hard experiment that would yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, ugh, I, I, all these experiments on animals of like strapping down Strap and them like down, get the piling ticks on them yeah. or like measure their heart rate. Yeah. So I've only read that uh, this didn't say if you could keep them in this sort of indefinitely, um, but it did say that the these like coma-like states would last 40 uh, minutes to four hours. Huh probably unpleasant for them that's probably why when you kicked it probably didn't want to go straight into it maybe yeah <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> so it kicker. seems it seems like you know the best bet uh oh uh winifred and william krauss i have it written here that was the the couple that i was trying to think about who wrote that book and they said that if you held a possum by the neck and the other hand and use the other hand to support its back. The possum simply gives up, relaxes, and often clasps its hands, four paws together in a prayer-like pose. And so, <laughs> wow, the praying possum. These, yeah, so these two strategies of like just going sort of limp in that tonic immobility stage and in the death feigning stage in like really serious situations does seem to be a predator deterrent in an animal that has almost no other defenses. They can climb, but they can only move at like three and a half miles an hour. So <laughs> they walk most places. They could outrun a sloth. If a turtle or a sloth attack them, just race away. If you're on the ground and a coyote comes up to you, like if you're red foxes and gray foxes, gray foxes can climb really well and red foxes can't climb. And so 
they are very similar in size and habitat and niche, and both of them get eaten by coyotes. But coyote predation rates on gray foxes are way less. Because they can skitter up, skitter up a tree. Exactly. But possums that can climb, if they could move faster, could escape the terrifying jaws of a, a coyote. coyote. Only to be but eaten by just, a gray fox in the tree. Yeah. But they're just not fast. They have this thanatosis, uh, so that's helpful, but they don't have, yeah, a lot of... It's got to be somewhat limited when your best defense is just to be completely still so the predator can just start eating you up right there. (laughs) 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 If they so choose. Yeah, that's one of the things that's strange about is, you know, some, like skunks have what's called the post-somatic coloring. And so they have black and white stripes that indicate, hey, I'm toxic, you know, stay away from me. I'm making myself visually obvious. But possums don't, I guess they have sort of this white color, but to the south, they're more mottled and darker and they camouflage in. Yeah, they've got that gross fur. Might be like, I might not taste that good. Look at my fur is kind of gross. Yeah, maybe that's about all all they have for My tail is naked. This is going to be unpleasant for you to eat. Yeah, well, the foul smell though. You know, the butthole liquid, as it were. That seems, it might work. <laughs> it would work enough. on me. I wouldn't need it. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> wouldn't. I've eaten almost every kind of roadkill that I've found, and I've never had a uh, possum. I found plenty of possums, but there's something that just kind of grosses me out. And, you know, they should be good eating. In cities, they are 33% larger than they are in rural environments because they have a steadier diet. This is, uh, we kind of skipped ahead from the the major fact, but just to kind of circle back, one of the things that has allowed them to follow humans farther and farther north is train hopping, uh, being transported (laughs) for fur and food, but also because they are such strong generalists they can eat cat food that's left out they can eat people's gardens they can eat all sorts of garbage and other refuse associated uh, with urban environments they also eat a ton of roadkill and so there's a lot in urban environments that can support them because winters are less harsh for them they're the only member of the genus didelphus that can store fat and so in these urban environments where there's more of a constant food source even through the winter months they can store more fat and they can have access to more food in the winter so they don't burn through all, all of that fat. stored fat and they can in cold environments stay warm in some hidey hole they have yeah but they... wait 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 uh, before you distract me too far you just yeah. said hidey hole <laughs> and part of what i wanted to mention was heidi the opossum who is a famous cross-eyed possum and <laughs> she she was at the leipzig zoo in germany and cross-eyed possums are not common in the wild, but in as pets or in like urban environments where you have much larger, so, you know, a third larger for the for possums in urban environments. Overweight possums, they can store fat in their tails uh, and in their bodies, but they also store fat in their heads. And <laughs> if they store fat behind their eyes and it'll make them go cross-eyed. <laughs> and so Heidi, the opossum, the cross-eyed opossum was, I think I sent you that music video earlier today that was about possums and right. it was in German and it was inspired by Heidi the cross-eyed possum who is overweight. Fat-headed. Yeah, big skull they call it. We call them big skull. Yeah. Actually no it's just fat. Fat in there. No it's fat yeah. Fat in the head. Wow. What were you going to say? I was going to ask a question. Well I was saying that maybe they can stay warm in hidey holes in the city. But I was wondering if they with their poop eating habit would clean up dog poop. Is that a potential service where they would go out and nibble on all the dog poop that's left in the city and kind of <laughs> janitorial <laughs> janitorial services 
Yeah, I mean, as much as it's a strange thing, but as much as I've been tracking possums, I've rarely ever encountered their droppings. I I do have like a, a little shed in the side of my driveway and uh, there was a possum that was denning up there last year. And so I found a couple of the old dried nuggets in there. They were way less offensive than all the disgusting dog scat <laughs> that you find all over New York City where yeah, I used to live. So, so. They're an upgrade, upgrade for the cityscape. Well, have we covered everything on you wanted to, to um, tell our listeners about their physical description? Yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing is, no, yeah, we're good. They have 50 teeth. Yeah, that's crazy. That's what I'd it's heard. the most, it's the most yeah. teeth of any, right? Any mammal? <laughs> of any terrestrial mammal. Dolphins have way more. Um, other whales have more than that. But yeah, they have an incredible number of teeth. And do, do you know the cool thing? So uh, we have we have more teeth in our lifetime than possums do. Because we have you know 28 or 32 teeth and we have two full sets uh not totally but we have let's say we have two sets of 28 teeth so we would have 56 teeth possums over the course of their life only have four 54 teeth so there's only one tooth get that gets replaced as an adult the last premolar they just get one one, they just get one one baby tooth huh i I heard i read that possum bites are uh, likely to get infected Maybe not because of the 50 teeth. Maybe this goes back to their eating habits. But Yeah, it probably goes back to their eating habits. They, I mean, you know, skunks make great pets apparently because they have such a strong defense mechanism of their spray that they don't have to be super aggressive. Um, and so they're very docile as pets. And so if you remove the scent glands, then they're great. And with possums, you would think that not, I mean, they have this this defense that would make it way less likely they don't want to be aggressive. You know, they want to like be aggressive to a point and then just pass out. And so they are really not aggressive at all. And it would take a lot to get one to bite you without passing out. Like if it got to the point where it felt threatened (laughs) enough to bite you, it it would be pass out first. Yeah. Not unconscious, but passed out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am curious, like, what do you think it is that's your bond with the possum in the end? Well, I, 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 there are probably two reasons. One, well, one is like just a intuitive or sort of visceral connection that I feel to him. And then one is maybe more of like a, a conscious cultivated connection. And the conscious cultivated connection is I like them because they are so maligned. And I often feel just a real fondness for things that other people tend to hate or think are ugly and not full circle kind of ugly where they're so ugly they're cute <laughs> but like uh that they're pests and they you know should be eradicated or whatever uh like box elder is my favorite tree you know people call it yeah, junk maple malign it, right yeah and so i like it for that reason because i've mentioned a couple times in this episode people try to make a case for the uh them like oh they don't carry rabies they are really excellent at you know removing ticks from the environment and reducing lime load in an environment and so they serve this function and so they're valuable for that reason i tend to stay away from those arguments and like i think all species are interesting my sister one of the other questions she's like what value do they have like if you took them (laughs) away what would happen and it's like if you took any organism away something would there'd be this whole cascade of Effects. effects and the more that you know about your environment the more clearly you can see how that would play out on a landscape because you can see the smaller threads that are 
maybe less visible initially versus like if you take a beaver out obviously you get rid of these wetland complexes and so possums are you know they're like hard to figure out i think the the sort of visceral reaction that i have to them is they're just so enigmatic and all, i i mentioned that they were opaque and that they're enigmatic and impenetrable but there's also just something so immediately compelling to me about them like it does look so this uh other encounter i had with a possum uh, i just got down on my hands and knees and i just followed it around for like 45 minutes and we were just i wasn't eating anything but it was just foraging around kind of snuffling about on the ground licking at ants and it just had this way of moving about the landscape where it seemed really curious about everything uh, they have these long whiskers that they have this really strong tactile sense of the environment and so they're constantly sniffing they're constantly feeling with their whiskers uh they have these dark beady eyes <laughs> that you can't really <laughs> see where they're looking i'd be looking everywhere so they're explorers they're curious they're like little naturalists out there they are little teagues and then you just you see them doing these weird things so one of the things that i have read about and i was able to see is they'll lick their face uh, with their tongue, and then they'll rub their face onto objects. And this is sort of a breeding season thing. I didn't mention this in courtship, um, but this is one of the the <laughs> ways that they will advertise their presence. <laughs> and it, it just, it, a lot of their physical biology and their behavioral ecology just seems so counterintuitive to how humans operate in the world right. and there's something really fascinating and compelling about that and you can just immediately sense it when you look at them i i hate the i mean that's such a strong way of saying it but like the idea of thinking of things as living fossils that have remained unchanged for millions of years but there is something that does feel a little bit antiquated about the possum's design i mean they're the only marsupial that we have in north america uh, almost there are a couple other species in the southern part of it but we don't really have anything else in our environment that operates like this they used to be the most abundant form of uh mammals this is marsupials and now they're just relegated to these smaller parts Little in zones. south america and australia and so that uh, there's just something that is like you i don't know you just get a visceral sense that there's a thread that connects back to something that's a little bit more ancient back to velociraptors maybe yeah that initial yeah exactly well i i do uh know i believe that possums used to be in south america only when south america and north america were separated and then when the continents merged they made their way up and my understanding is is that possums armadillos and uh porcupines are the three animals that made it from the south and sort of survived up in north america and to me they all they all seem kind of different they seem like they're from elsewhere they look a little different from our mm -hmm. other mammals so yeah armadillos are cool and i can't remember what the number is but it's like on average seven miles a year or something is the range of one armadillo species expansion <laughs> northward so it's like keeps <laughs> going north slow. uh yeah i mean that's the other thing i didn't mention earlier with opossums but as you know the climate continues to warm on average it's not just that they're following humans in cities, Hopping but that trains. these surrounding areas uh, that are more rural or agricultural adjacent to cities are becoming more habitable. And so these cities wind up becoming these source populations for surrounding areas to colonize out from areas like Detroit or Boston or wherever. Yeah, climate change also have an impact. Right. But yeah, I mean, that, uh, what you just mentioned with 
the evolutionary and geologic history, the possums as a group, uh, so Didelphidae, there's this connection between marsupials with Australia, Antarctica, and and South America. Um, but yeah, these these continents were all connected in the late Eocene, like 40 million years ago or so. And there's a bunch of fossil evidence in Antarctica of these marsupials as they made their way from Australia to Antarctica to South America and have been sort of radiating and diversifying as they have moved their way north into eventually North America. And the uh, Virginia possum is sort of at the vanguard of that marsupial expansion into areas that were already colonized by placental mammals and have largely limited their evolution in the new world. But yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Weege. You cut me off. Don't cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not got more to say about my friend, the I know, possum. I know. I, I, I could be here all night. Yeah. I'm ready. Um, no, we should, we should cut me off. Uh, yeah. So next week or next episode, we're going to talk about gray squirrels, which is going to be fantastic. Uh, I'm going to tell you all about ye old love, ye old lovable little scamps feeding club <laughs> and my fondness for, yeah, the gray squirrel. I'm excited about that. I'm going to be squirrel watching the entire time between now and the next episode. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me. I'm not going to kick any though. I draw the line. Jogging through the forest and kicking our animals. A <laughs> barbarian would do that. A trip. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll all right. see you next Until time. Until next time. Take care, Teague. Bye. Bye-bye. Gross and fascinating all bundled up into one nearly adorable cat-sized package. Well, that's the Virginia possum. Up next, it's on to the universally adored gray squirrel. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. And head over to crowspath.org slash podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board, where you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.